Chapter 2, Confession Agreeable to his own appointment on the evening he was committed to prison, with permission of the jailer, I visited Nat on Tuesday the 1st November, when, without being questioned at all, he commenced his narrative in the following words. Sir, you have asked me to give a history of the motives which induced me to undertake the late insurrection, as you call it. To do so, I must go back to the days of my infancy, and even before I was born. I was thirty-one years of age, the second of October last, and born the property of Benjamin Turner, of this county. In my childhood, a circumstance occurred which made an indelible impression on my mind, and laid the groundwork of that enthusiasm which has terminated so fatally to many, both white and black, and for which I am about to atone at the gallows. It is here necessary to relate this circumstance. Trifling as it may seem, it was the commencement of that belief which has grown with time, and even now, sir, in this dungeon, helpless and forsaken as I am, I cannot divest myself of. Being at play with other children, when three or four years old, I was telling them something which my mother overhearing said it happened before I was born. I stuck to my story, however, and related some things which went, in her opinion, to confirm it. Others being called on were greatly astonished, knowing that these things had happened, and caused them to say in my hearing, I surely would be a prophet, as the Lord has shown me things that had happened before my birth. And my father and mother strengthened me in this my first impression, saying in my presence, I was intended for some great purpose, which they had always thought from certain marks on my head and breast, a parcel of excrescence which I believe are not at all uncommon, particularly among Negroes, as I have seen several with the same. In this case, he has either cut them off or they have nearly disappeared. My grandmother, who was very religious and to whom I was much attached, my master, who belonged to the church and other religious persons who visited the house and whom I often saw at prayers, noticing the singularity of my manners, I suppose, and my uncommon intelligence for a child, marked I had too much sense to be raised as if I was, I would never be of any service to anyone as a slave." To a mind like mine, restless, inquisitive, and observant of everything that was passing, it is easy to suppose that religion was the subject to which it would be directed. And although this subject principally occupied my thoughts, there was nothing that I saw or heard of to which my attention was not directed. The manner in which I learned to read and write not only had great influence on my own mind, as I acquired it with the most perfect ease, so much so that I have no recollection whatever of learning the alphabet. But to the astonishment of the family, one day, when a book was shown me to keep me from crying, I began spelling the names of different objects. This was a source of wonder to all in the neighborhood, particularly the blacks, and this learning was constantly improved at all opportunities. When I got large enough to go to work, while employed, I was reflecting on many things that would present themselves to my imagination, and whenever an opportunity occurred of looking at a book when the school children were getting their lessons, I would find many things that the fertility of my own imagination had depicted to me before. All my time not devoted to my master's service was spent either in prayer or in making experiments in casting different things in molds made of earth in attempting to make paper, gunpowder, and many other experiments that, although I could not perfect, yet convinced me of its practicability if I had the means. Footnote. When questioned as to the manner of manufacturing those different articles, he was found well informed on the subject. I was not addicted to stealing in my youth, nor have ever been. Yet such was the confidence of the Negroes in the neighborhood, even at this early period in my life, in my superior judgment, that they would often carry me with them when they were going on any roguery to plan for them. Growing up among them, with this confidence in my superior judgment, and when this, in their opinions, was perfected by divine inspiration, from the circumstances already alluded to in my infancy, 
and which belief was afterwards zealously inculcated by the austerity of my life and manners, which became the subject of remark by white and black. Having soon discovered to be great, I must appear so, and therefore studiously avoided mixing in society, and wrapped myself in mystery, devoting my time to fasting and prayer. By this time, having arrived to man's estate, and hearing the scriptures commented on at meetings, I was struck with that particular passage which says, Seek ye the kingdom of heaven, and all things shall be added unto you. I reflected much on this passage, and prayed daily for light on the subject. As I was praying one day at my plow, the Spirit spoke to me, saying, Seek ye the kingdom of heaven, and all things shall be added unto you. Question. What do you mean by the Spirit? Answer. The Spirit that spoke to the prophet in former days. And I was greatly astonished, and for two years prayed continually, whenever my duty would permit. And then again I had the same revelation which fully confirmed me in the impression that I was ordained for some great purpose in the hands of the Almighty. Several years rolled around, in which many events occurred to strengthen me in this my belief. At this time I reverted in my mind to the remarks made of me in my childhood, and the things that had been shown me, and as it had been said of me in my childhood by those by whom I had been taught to pray, both white and black, and in whom I had the greatest confidence that I had too much sense to be raised, and if I was, I would never be of use to anyone as a slave. Now finding I had arrived to man's estate, and I was a slave, and these revelations being made known to me, I began to direct my attention to this great object, to fulfill the purpose for which by this time I felt assured I was intended. Knowing the influence I had obtained over the minds of my fellow servants, not by the means of conjuring and such like tricks, for to them I always spoke of such things with contempt, but by the communion of the Spirit whose revelations I often communicated to them, and they believed and said my wisdom came from God. I now began to prepare them for my purpose, by telling them something was about to happen that would terminate in fulfilling the great promise that had been made to me. About this time I was placed under an overseer from whom I ran away, and after remaining in the woods thirty days, I returned, to the astonishment of the negroes on the plantation, who thought I had made my escape to some other part of the country, as my father had done before. But the reason of my return was that the Spirit appeared to me and said I had my wishes directed to the things of this world and not to the kingdom of heaven, and that I should return to the service of my earthly master. For he who knoweth his master's will, and doeth it not, shall be beaten with many stripes, and thus I have chastened you. And the negroes found fault and murmured against me, saying that if they had my sense, they would not serve any master in the world. And about that time I had a vision. I saw white spirits and black spirits engaged in battle, and the sun was darkened. The thunder rolled in the heavens, and the blood flowed in the streams, and I heard a voice saying, Such is your luck, such you are called to see, and let it come rough or smooth, you must surely bear it. I now withdrew myself as much as my situation would permit, from the intercourse of my fellow servants, for the avowed purpose of serving the Spirit more fully, and it appeared to me, and reminded me of the things it had already shown me, and that it would then reveal to me the knowledge of the elements, the revolution of the planets, the operation of tides, and changes of the seasons. After this revelation in the year 1825, and the knowledge of the elements being made known to me, I sought more than ever to obtain true holiness before the great day of judgment should appear, and then I began to receive the true knowledge of faith. And from the first steps of righteousness until the last I was made perfect, 
and the Holy Ghost was with me, and said, Behold me as I stand in the heavens. And I looked and saw the forms of men in different attitudes, and there were the lights in the sky, to which the children of darkness gave other names than what they really were, for they were the lights of the Saviour's hands, stretched forth from east to west, even as they were extended on the cross on Calvary for the redemption of sinners. And I wondered greatly at these miracles, and prayed to be informed of a certainty of the meaning thereof. And shortly afterwards, while laboring in the field, I discovered drops of blood on the corn as though it were dew from heaven, and I communicated it to many, both white and black, in the neighborhood. And I then found on the leaves in the woods hieroglyphic characters, and numbers with the forms of men in different attitudes portrayed in blood, and representing the figures I had seen before in the heavens. And now the Holy Ghost had revealed itself to me, and made plain the miracles it had shown me. For as the blood of Christ had been shed on this earth, and had ascended to heaven for the salvation of sinners, and was now returning to the earth again in the form of dew, and as the leaves on the earth bore the impressions of the figures I had seen in the heavens, it was plain to me that the Savior was about to lay down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men, and the great day of judgment was at hand. About this time I told these things to a white man, Ethelred T. Brantley, on whom it had a wonderful effect. And he ceased from his wickedness, and was attacked immediately with a cutaneous eruption, and blood oozed from the pores of his skin. And after praying and fasting nine days, he was healed. And the Spirit appeared to me again and said, As the Savior had been baptized, so should we be also. And when the white people would not let us be baptized by the church, we went down into the water together in the sight of many who reviled us, and were baptized by the Spirit. After this I rejoiced greatly and gave thanks to God. And on the 12th of May, 1828, I heard a loud noise in the heavens, and the Spirit instantly appeared to me and said the serpent was loosened, and Christ had laid down the yoke he had borne for the sins of men, and that I should take it on and fight against the serpent. For the time was fast approaching when the first should be last, and the last should be first. Question. Do you not find yourself mistaken now? Answer. Was not Christ crucified, and by signs in the heavens that it would make known to me when I should commence the great work, and until the first sign appeared, I should conceal it from the knowledge of men, and on the appearance of the sign, the eclipse of the sun last February, I should arise and prepare myself and slay my enemies with their own weapons. And immediately on the sign appearing in the heavens, the seal was removed from my lips, and I communicated the great work laid out for me to do, to four in whom I had the greatest confidence, Henry, Hark, Nelson, and Sam. It was intended by us to have begun the work of death on the 4th July last. Many were the plans formed and rejected by us, and it affected my mind to such a degree that I fell sick, and the time passed without our coming to any determination how to commence, still forming new schemes and rejecting them, when the sign appeared again, which determined me not to wait longer. Since the commencement of 1830, I had been living with Mr. Joseph Travis, who was to me a kind master and placed the greatest confidence in me. In fact, I had no cause to complain of his treatment to me. On Saturday evening, the 20th of August, it was agreed between Henry, Hark, and myself to prepare a dinner the next day for the men we expected, and then to concert a plan, as we had not yet determined on any. Hark, on the following morning, brought a pig, and Henry, brandy. And being joined by Sam, Nelson, Will, and Jack, they prepared in the woods a dinner where, about three o'clock, I joined them. Question. Why were you so backward in joining them? Answer. The same reason that had caused me not to mix with them for years before. I saluted them on coming up and asked Will how came he there. He answered, his life was worth no more than others and his liberty is dear to him. I asked him if he thought to obtain it. He said he would or lose his life. This was enough to put him in full confidence. 
Jack, I knew, was only a tool in the hands of Hark. It was quickly agreed we should commence at home, Mr. J. Travis's. On that night, and until we had armed and equipped ourselves and gathered sufficient force, neither age nor sex was to be spared, which was invariably adhered to. We remained at the feast until about two hours in the night when we went to the house and found Austin. They all went to the cider press and drank, except myself. On returning to the house, Hark went to the door with an axe, for the purpose of breaking it open, as we knew we were strong enough to murder the family, if they were awaked by the noise, but reflecting that it might create an alarm in the neighborhood, we determined to enter the house secretly and murder them while sleeping. Hark got a ladder and set it against the chimney, which I ascended, and hoisting a window entered and came downstairs, unbarred the door and removed the guns from their places. It was then observed that I must spill the first blood on which armed with a hatchet and accompanied by will i entered my master's chamber it being dark i could not give a death blow the hatchet glanced from his head he sprang from the bed and called his wife it was his last word will laid him dead with a blow of his axe and mrs travis shared the same fate as she lay in bed the murder of this family five in number was the work of a moment not one of them awoke there was a little infant sleeping in a cradle that was forgotten until we had left the house and gone some distance when henry and will returned and killed it we got here four guns that would shoot and several old muskets with a pound or two of powder we remained some time at the barn where we paraded i formed them in a line as soldiers and after carrying them through all the maneuvers i was master of marched them off to mr southall francis's about six hundred yards distance sam and will went to the door and knocked mr francis asked who was there sam replied that it was him and he had a letter for him on which he got up and came to the door they immediately seized him and dragging him out a little from the door he was dispatched by repeated blows on the head there was no other white person in the family we started from there to mrs reese's maintaining the most perfect silence on our march where finding the door unlocked we entered and murdered mrs reese in her bed while sleeping her son awoke but it was only to sleep the sleep of death he had only time to say who is that and he was no more from Mrs. Reese's we went to Mrs. Turner's, a mile distant, from which we reached about sunrise on Monday morning. Henry, Austin, and Sam went to the still, where, finding Mr. Peebles, Austin shot him, and the rest of us went to the house. As we approached, the family discovered us and shut the door. Vain hope. Will, with one stroke of his axe, opened it, and we entered and found Mrs. Turner and Mrs. Newsom in the middle of a room, almost frightened to death. Will immediately killed Mrs. Turner with one blow of his axe. I took Mrs. Newsom by the hand, and with the sword I had when I was apprehended, I struck her several blows over the head, but not being able to kill her, as the sword was dull. Will, turning around and discovering it, dispatched her also. A general destruction of property and search for money and ammunition always succeeded the murders. By this time my company amounted to fifteen, and nine men mounted who started for Mrs. Whitehead's. The other six were to go through a byway to Mrs. Bryant's and rejoin us at Mrs. Whitehead's. As we approached the house, we discovered Mr. Richard Whitehead standing in the cotton patch, near the lane fence. We called him over into the lane, and Will, the executioner, was near at hand with his fatal axe to send him to an untimely grave. As we pushed onto the house, I discovered someone run round the garden, and thinking it was someone of the White family, I pursued them. But finding it was a servant girl belonging to the house, I returned to commence the work of death. But they whom I left had not been idle. All the family were already murdered, but Mrs. Whitehead and her daughter Margaret. As I came round to the door, I saw Will pulling Mrs. Whitehead out of the house, and at the step he nearly severed her head from her body with his broad axe. Miss Margaret, when I discovered her, had concealed herself in the corner, formed by the projection of the cellar cap from the house. On my approach she fled, but was soon overtaken, and after repeated blows with a sword, I killed her by a blow on the head, with a fence rail. 
By this time, the six who had gone by Mr. Bryant's rejoined us and informed me they had done the work of death assigned them. We again divided, part going to Mr. Richard Porter's and from thence to Nathaniel Francis's, the others to Mr. Howell Harris's and Mr. T. Doyle's. On my reaching Mr. Porter's, he had escaped with his family. I understood there that the alarm had already spread, and I immediately returned to bring up those sent to Mr. Doyle's and Mr. Howell Harris's, the party I had left on to Mr. Francis's, having told them I would join them in that neighborhood. I met those sent to Mr. Doyle's and Mr. Harris's returning, having met Mr. Doyle on the road and killed him, and learning from some who joined them that Mr. Harris was from home. I immediately pursued the course taken by the party gone on before, but knowing they would complete the work of death and pillage at Mr. Francis's before I could get there. I went to Mr. Peter Edwards, expecting to find them there, but they had been there also. I then went to Mr. John T. Barrows. They had been here and murdered him. I pursued on their track to Captain Newitt Harris's, where I found the greater part mounted and ready to start. The men, now amounting to about forty, shouted and hurrahed as I rode up. Some were in the yard loading their guns, others drinking. They said Captain Harris and his family had escaped. The property in the house they destroyed, robbing him of money and other valuables. I ordered them to mount and march instantly. This was about nine or ten o'clock, Monday morning. I proceeded to Mr. Levi Waller's, two or three miles distant. I took my station in the rear, and it was my object to carry terror and devastation wherever we went. I placed fifteen or twenty of the best armed and most to be relied on in front, who generally approached the houses as fast as their horses could run. This was for two purposes, to prevent their escape and strike terror to the inhabitants. On this account, I never got to the houses, after leaving Mrs. Whitehead's, until the murders were committed, except in one case. I sometimes got in sight in time to see the work of death completed viewed the mangled bodies as they lay in silent satisfaction and immediately started in quest of other victims. Having murdered Mrs. Waller and ten children, we started for Mr. William Williams's. Having killed him and two little boys that were there, while engaged in this, Mrs. Williams fled and got some distance from the house, but she was pursued, overtaken, and compelled to get up behind one of the company, who brought her back, and after showing her the mangled body of her lifeless husband, she was told to get down and lay by his side, where she was shot dead. I then started for Mr. Jacob Williams, where the family were murdered. Here we found a young man named Drury, who had come on business with Mr. Williams. He was pursued, overtaken, and shot. Mrs. Vaughn was the next place we visited. And after murdering the family here, I determined on starting for Jerusalem. Our number amounted now to fifty or sixty, all mounted and armed with guns, axes, swords, and clubs. On reaching Mr. James W. Parker's gate, immediately on the road leading to Jerusalem, and about three miles distant, it was proposed to me to call there, but I objected, as I knew he was gone to Jerusalem, and my object was to reach there as soon as possible. But some of the men having relations at Mr. Parker's, it was agreed that they might call and get his people. I remained at the gate on the road with seven or eight, the others going across the field to the house, about a half a mile off. After waiting some time for them, I became impatient and started to the house for them, and on our return we were met by a party of white men, who had pursued our blood-stained track, and who had fired on those at the gate, and dispersed them which I knew nothing of, not having been at that time rejoined by any of them. Immediately on discovering the whites, I ordered my men to halt and form, as they appeared to be alarmed. The white men, eighteen in number, approached us in about one hundred yards when one of them fired. This was against the positive orders of Captain Alexander P. Pete, who commanded, and who had directed the men to reserve their fire until within thirty paces. And I discovered about half of them retreating. I then ordered my men to fire and rush on them. The few remaining stood their ground until we approached within fifty yards, when they fired and retreated. We pursued and overtook some of them who we thought we left dead. They were not killed. 
After pursuing them about 200 yards and rising a little hill, I discovered they were met by another party and had halted and were reloading their guns. This was a small party from Jerusalem who knew the Negroes were in the field and had just tied their horses to await their return to the road, knowing that Mr. Parker and family were in Jerusalem, but knew nothing of the party that had gone in with Captain Pete. On hearing the firing, they immediately rushed to the spot and arrived just in time to arrest the progress of these barbarous villains and save the lives of their friends and fellow citizens. Thinking that those who retreated first and the party who fired on us at 50 or 60 yards distant had all only fallen back to meet others with ammunition. As I saw them reloading their guns and more coming up than I saw at first and several of my bravest men being wounded, the others became panic-struck and squandered over the field. The white men pursued and fired on us several times. Park had his horse shot under him, and I caught another for him as it was running by me. Five or six of my men were wounded, but none left on the field. Finding myself defeated here, I instantly determined to go through a private way and cross the Nottoway River at the Cypress Bridge, three miles below Jerusalem, and attack that place in the rear, as I expected they would look for me on the other road. And I had a great desire to get there to procure arms and ammunition. After going a short distance in this private way, accompanied by about twenty men, I overtook two or three who told me the others were dispersed in every direction. After trying in vain to collect a sufficient force to proceed to Jerusalem, I determined to return, as I was sure they would make back to their old neighborhood where they would rejoin me, make new recruits, and come down again. On my way back, I called at Mrs. Thomas's, Mrs. Spencer's, and several other places, the white families having fled. We found no more victims to gratify our thirst for blood. We stopped at Major Ridley's quarter for the night, and being joined by four of his men, with the recruits made since my defeat, we mustered now about forty strong. After placing out sentinels, I laid down to sleep, but was quickly roused by a great racket. Starting up, I found some mounted and others in great confusion, one of the sentinels having given the alarm that we were about to be attacked. I ordered some to ride round and reconnoiter, and on the return, the others being more alarmed, not knowing who they were, fled in different ways so that I was reduced to about twenty again. With this, I determined to attempt to recruit, and proceed on to rally in the neighborhood I had left. Dr. Blunt's was the nearest house, which we reached just before day. On riding up the yard, Hark fired a gun. We expected Dr. Blunt and his family were at Major Ridley's, as I knew there was a company of men there. The gun was fired to ascertain if any of the family were at home. We were immediately fired upon and retreated, leaving several of my men. I do not know what became of them, as I never saw them afterwards. Pursuing our course back and coming in sight of Captain Harris's, where we had been the day before, we discovered a party of white men at the house, on which all deserted me but two, Jacob and Nat. We concealed ourselves in the woods until near night, when I sent them in search of Henry, Sam, Nelson, and Hark, and directed them to rally all they could at the place we had had our dinner the Sunday before where they would find me and accordingly returned there as soon as it was dark and remained until Wednesday evening. When discovering white men riding around the place as though they were looking for someone and none of my men joining me, I concluded Jacob and Nat had been taken and compelled to betray me. On this I gave up all hope for the present. And on Thursday night, after having supplied myself with provisions for Mr. Travis's, I scratched a hole under a pile of fence rails in a field where I concealed myself for six weeks, never leaving my hiding place but for a few minutes in the dead of night to get water which was very near. Thinking by this time I could venture out, I began to go about in the night and eavesdrop the houses in the neighborhood, pursuing this course for about a fortnight and gathering little or no intelligence, afraid of speaking to any human being and returning every morning to my cave before the dawn of day. I know not how long I might have led this life, if accident had not betrayed me. 
A dog in the neighborhood passing by my hiding place one night while I was out was attracted by some meat I had in my cave and crawled in and stole it and was coming out just as I returned. A few nights after, two Negroes having started to go hunting with the same dog and passed that way. The dog came again to the place and having just gone out to walk about, discovered me and barked, on which thinking myself discovered, I spoke to them to beg concealment. On making myself known, they fled from me. Knowing then they would betray me, I immediately left my hiding place and was pursued almost incessantly until I was taken a fortnight afterwards by Mr. Benjamin Phipps, in a little hole I had dug out with my sword for the purpose of concealment under the top of a fallen tree. On Mr. Phipps's discovering the place of my concealment, he cocked his gun and aimed at me. I requested him not to shoot, and I would give up, upon which he demanded my sword. I delivered it to him, and he brought me to prison. During the time I was pursued, I had many hairbreadth escapes, which your time will not permit you to relate. I am here loaded with chains and willingly to suffer the fate that awaits me. I here proceeded to make some inquiries of him, after assuring him of the certain death that awaited him, and that concealment would only bring destruction of the innocent as well as the guilty of his own color, if he knew of any extensive or concerted plan. His answer was, I do not. When I questioned him as to the insurrection in North Carolina happening about the same time, he denied any knowledge of it. And when I looked him in the face as though I would search his inmost thoughts, he replied, I see, sir, you doubt my word. But can you not think the same ideas and strange appearances about this time in the heavens might prompt others as well as myself to this undertaking? I now had much conversation with and asked him many questions, having forborne to do so previously except in the cases noted in parenthesis, but during his statement. I had, unnoticed by him, taken notes as to some particular circumstances, and having the advantage of his statement before him, in writing, on the evening of the third day that I had been with him, I began a cross-examination and found his statement corroborated by every circumstance coming within my own knowledge or the confessions of others whom had either been killed or executed, and whom he had not seen or had any knowledge since 22nd of August last. He expressed himself fully satisfied as to the impracticability of his attempt. It has been said he was ignorant and cowardly, and that his object was to murder and rob for the purpose of obtaining money to make his escape. It is notorious that he was never known to have a dollar in his life to swear an oath or drink a drop of spirits. As to his ignorance, he certainly never had the advantages of education, but he can read and write. It was taught him by his parents. And for natural intelligence and quickness of apprehension, is surpassed by few men I have ever seen. As to his being a coward, his reason as given for not resisting Mr. Phipps shows the decision of his character. When he saw Mr. Phipps present his gun, he said he knew it was impossible for him to escape as the woods were full of men. He therefore thought it was better to surrender and trust to fortune for his escape. He is a complete fanatic, or plays his part most admirably. On other subjects, he possesses an uncommon share in intelligence, with a mind capable of attending anything, but warped and perverted by the influence of early impressions. He is below the ordinary stature, though strong and active, having the true Negro face, every feature of which is strongly marked. I shall not attempt to describe the effect of his narrative as told and commented on by himself in the condemned whole of the prison. The calm, deliberate composure with which he spoke of his late deeds and intentions, the expression of his fiend-like face when excited by enthusiasm still bearing the stains of the blood of helpless innocence about him clothed with rags and covered with chains, yet daring to raise his manacled hands to heaven with the spirit of soaring above the attributes of man, I looked on him and my blood curdled in my veins.
I will not shock the feelings of humanity, nor wound afresh the bosoms of the disconsolate sufferers in this unparalleled and inhuman massacre by detailing the deeds of their fiend-like barbarity. There were two or three who were in the power of those wretches, they had known it, and who escaped in the most providential manner. There were two whom they thought they left dead on the field at Mr. Parker's, but who were only stunned by the blows of their guns, as they did not take time to reload when they charged on them. The escape of a little girl who went to school at Mr. Waller's, and where the children were collecting for that purpose, excited general sympathy. As their teacher had not arrived, they were at play in the yard, and seeing the negroes approach, she ran up on a dirt chimney, such as are common to log houses, and remained there unnoticed during the massacre of the eleven that were killed at this place. She remained on her hiding place till just before the arrival of a party who were in pursuit of the murderers when she came down and fled to a swamp where, a mere child as she was, with the horrors of the late scene before her, she lay concealed until the next day. When seeing a party go up to the house, she came up, and on being asked how she escaped, replied with the utmost simplicity, the Lord helped her. She was taken up behind a gentleman of the party and returned to the arms of her weeping mother. Miss Whitehead concealed herself between the bed and the mat that supported it, while they murdered her sister in the same room, without discovering her. She was afterwards carried off and concealed for protection by a slave of the family, who gave evidence against several of them on their trial. Mrs. Nathaniel Francis, while concealed in a closet, heard their blows, and the shrieks of the victims of these ruthless savages. They then entered the closet where she was concealed and went out without discovering her. While in this hiding place, she heard two of her women in a quarrel about the division of her clothes. Mr. John T. Barron, discovering them approaching his house, told his wife to make her escape, and scorning to fly, fell fighting on his own threshold. After firing his rifle, he discharged his gun at them, and then broke it over the villain who first approached him, but he was overpowered and slain. His bravery, however, saved from the hands of these monsters his lovely and amiable wife, who will always lament a husband so deserving of her love. As directed by him, she attempted to escape through the garden, when she was caught and held by one of her servant girls, but another coming to her rescue, she fled to the woods and concealed herself. Few indeed were those who escaped their work of death. But fortunate for society, the hand of retributive justice has overtaken them, and not one that was known to be concerned has escaped. The Commonwealth versus Nat Turner Charged with making insurrection and plotting to take away the lives of divers free white persons and etc. on the 22nd of August, 1831. The court composed of, having met for the trial of Nat Turner, the prisoner was brought in and arraigned, and upon his arraignment pleaded not guilty, saying to his counsel that he did not feel so. On the part of the Commonwealth, Levi Waller was introduced, who, being sworn, deposed as follows, agreeably to Nat's own confession, Colonel Trisvant, footnote, the committing magistrate, was then introduced, who being sworn, narrated Nat's confession to him, as follows, his confession as given to Mr. Gray. The prisoner introduced no evidence, and the case was submitted without argument to the court, who having found him guilty, Jeremiah Cobb, Esquire Chairman, pronounced the sentence of the court in the following words, Nat Turner, stand up. Have you anything to say why sentence of death should not be pronounced against you? Answer. I have not. I have made a full confession to Mr. Gray, and I have nothing more to say. Attend then to the sentence of the court. You have been arraigned and tried before this court, and convicted of one of the highest crimes in our criminal code. 
You have been convicted of plotting in cold blood the indiscriminate destruction of men, of helpless women, and of infant children. The evidence before us leaves not a shadow of doubt, but that your hands were often imbrued in the blood of the innocent, and your own confession tells us that they were stained with the blood of a master, in your own language, too indulgent. Could I stop here? Your crime would be sufficiently aggravated. But the original contriver of a plan, deep and deadly, one that never can be affected, you managed so far to put it into execution, as to deprive us of many of our most valuable citizens. And this was done when they were asleep and defenseless, under circumstances shocking to humanity. And while upon this part of the subject, I cannot but call your attention to the poor, misguided wretches who have gone before you. They are not few in number. They were your bosom associates. And the blood of all cries aloud and calls upon you as the author of their misfortune. Yes, you forced them unprepared from time to eternity. Borne down by this load of guilt, your only justification is that you were led away by fanaticism. If this be true, for my soul I pity you. And while you have my sympathies, I am nevertheless called upon to pass the sentence of the court. The time between this and your execution will necessarily be very short, and your only hope must be in another world. The judgment of the court is that you be taken hence to the jail from whence you came, thence to the place of execution, and on Friday next, between the hours of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m., be hung by the neck until you are dead. 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 And may the Lord have mercy upon your soul. A list of persons murdered in the insurrection on the 21st and 22nd of August, 1831. Joseph Travers and wife and three children. Mrs. Elizabeth Turner, Hartwell Prebles, Sarah Newsom, Mrs. P. Reese, and son William, Trajan Doyle, Henry Bryant, and wife and child, and wife's mother, Mrs. Catherine Whitehead, son Richard, and four daughters and grandchild, Solithiel Francis, Nathaniel Francis's overseer and two children, John T. Barrow, George Vaughn, Mrs. Levi Waller, and ten children, William Williams, wife and two boys, Mrs. Caswell Worrell, and child, Mrs. Rebecca Vaughn, Anna Eliza Vaughn, and son Arthur, Mrs. John K. Williams and child, Mrs. Jacob Williams and three children, and Edward Drury, amounting to 55. A list of Negroes brought before the court of Southampton with their owners' names and sentence. Daniel, Richard Porter, convicted. Moses, J.T. Barrow, convicted. Tom, Katie Whitehead, discharged. Jack and Andrew, Katie Whitehead, convicted and transported. Jacob, George H. Charlton, discharged without trial. Isaac, George H. Charlton, convicted and transported. Jack, Everett Bryant, discharged. Nathan, Benjamin Blunt's estate, convicted. Nathan, Tom, and Davy, boys. Nathaniel Francis, convicted and transported. Davy, Elizabeth Turner, convicted. Curtis, Thomas Ridley, convicted. Stephen, Thomas Ridley, convicted. Hardy and Isham, Benjamin Edwards, convicted and transported. Sam, Nathaniel Francis, convicted. Hark, Joseph Travis's estate, convicted. Moses, a boy, Joseph Travis's estate, convicted and transported. Davy, Levi Waller, convicted. Nelson, Jacob Williams, convicted. Nat, Edmund Turner's estate, convicted. Jack, William Reese's estate, convicted. Dread. Nathaniel Francis, convicted. Arnold, artist, free, discharged. Sam, J.W. Parker, acquitted. End of chapter 2.